0: Well, friends, what encourages you the most? What encourages you the most, specifically, to keep going in life? Maybe it's your spouse or or some friends. Maybe it's the paycheck or the cold one that's in the refrigerator after a long day's work. Or the snack you keep in the cabinet hidden from the kids. What keeps you going in life? What encourages you? Is it kind words from friends? Or or maybe sometimes it's a little bit more firm words from friends to push you along. What is the biggest motivation in your life? A reward or maybe a punishment? What of those of us who are Christians? What of the Christian life? What keeps us going in the faith? What keeps us trusting Jesus and continuing to pursue Him? See, so often, I know you know this as well as I do, we face discouragement, whether we're Christians or not. The world is full of discouragement. It's part of living in a world that's been darkened by hardship and difficulty and frustration, products of sin and rebellion from the God who is full of strength and joy. And so, what is it that should cause us to keep going? And maybe you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian. And you wonder if this God that we've been singing to, that we've been praying to, has anything to say to you in your frustration and in your despair and in your discouragement. Well, in some ways, that's exactly where we find the people of God in our study together this morning. As we are nearing the end of our study of the minor prophets that we've been looking at over the last couple of months, they take up these last 12 books of our Old Testament. We come to the next, to last of them. And one of the most exciting, in my opinion. All of you know Zechariah, right? You familiar with the visions, right? I don't need to go through. No. It's a confusing book, but it's an exciting book. And I'm excited to get into it today. And the prophet Zechariah. He's a man of God who spoke to the people of God as they returned from exile. We saw this and thought about this a little bit last week with the prophet Haggai. We find that Haggai and Zechariah prophesied together. In fact, Ezra 5.1 says that the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And so we see these two men were, were brothers in arms of sort. And so we find that both Haggai and Zechariah were prophetic teammates, giving God's word to God's people. And what was that word? Well... As we'll come to see today, Zechariah had a mission from God, a specific mission to encourage God's people as they returned from their sin-induced captivity in Babylon. And what was his encouragement? Keep going. Keep working. Keep fighting. Keep building. Why? Because the very kingdom of God is at hand. If that was true for God's people in that day, how much more should it be true for us and our own? And so that's really my prayer today and next week as we look at the second half of Zechariah. It's the longer, longest of the minor prophets, so we're going to split it up into two. My prayers for this week and next week, Lord willing, is that we would be encouraged as God's people today to keep going because God's kingdom is coming and has in part already arrived. Now, to see this from Zechariah, we've got to do a little work this morning. This sermon, in particular, is going to require you to use your brains. So go ahead and turn them on. we are got to think. You've got to stay with me. We're looking at a big swath of text, like eight chapters. And I'm going to try to get through them all. I think we'll have a good time doing it. But they are delivered as revelation from God that are meant to draw hope out for the people of God. And that's really the aim here. But to understand them. There's, there's these eight visions that we need to look at. We put into points there in your bulletin. But to get at them first, we need to understand their purpose. And I want to get at the purpose before we even begin looking at them. I want, I want us to understand what these visions' purpose are before we ever look at them. And there's two things. You can jot these down if you want to. They're long sentences, so try to just kind of take notes. Don't try to write the whole thing down. What are the purpose of these visions? And you can you you expand this to what are the purpose of visions and dreams as they come to God's people in Scripture in general. If you think about you know, Joseph, if you think about uh, John in the book of Revelation, what, what is the picture of visions, purpose of visions? And so here's the first thing, that these visions, these dreams, are vivid word pictures pointing to a spiritual reality that's meant to spur the people on in their rebuilding of the temple in Zechariah's day. They're these vivid word pictures. They're they're metaphors for a spiritual reality that's meant to stir the people up. That's why some of them are a little bit weird. They're meant to get people going. But the second is that these visions are not held to a certain time. They're not beheld to a certain time and a certain place. But instead, we need to see these visions as unfolding some of them relating to the past, some of them relating to the present, and some of them relating to the future, some of them the end itself. And so I've said this before, but I think it's helpful to think of, of these prophetic visions, these dreams, these, these prophecies like the Blue Ridge Mountains. So if we were to look, if this wall wasn't here, we could look and we could see the star up on Mill Mountain up there. And then if we were to raise up a little bit, we could see another ridge of the mountains behind it. And we raise up a little bit more, we could see another ridge. And that's how these prophecies work out. There's an immediate fulfillment, but then there's a future fulfillment. And then there's a final fulfillment. And so we'll try to draw those things out as we go through. And that's my prayer for us today as we begin to explore these wonderful dreams of Zechariah, that the Spirit would give us wisdom that we, as they, might find great hope in the glory of the kingdom of God. So, if you have a Bible... Go and turn with me to Zechariah. If you're trying to find it in your own Bible, find the Gospel of Matthew and then turn back. You get Malachi, so we're going to look at in a couple weeks, and then Zechariah is right before that. If you didn't have a Bible of your own, we do provide some there in the pews in front of you. You can always use one of those. And as always, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have some blue Bibles in the foyer we'd love to give you as a gift today. Grab one on the way out and begin reading it and asking God to open your eyes to all that's held within it. As you make your way to Zechariah, friends, let me invite you to stand this morning out of honor for the reading of God's holy word. I want to read for us those first six verses of Zechariah to lay the foundation for everything that he's about to say. So let's stand now and hear the word of God. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido, saying... The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statues which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So as we wade into Zechariah's prophecy, as I said a moment ago, the longest of the minor prophets we find that he takes up this ministry that's common to all of them. He takes up a ministry that each one of these minor prophets has taken up in turn. And what is it? It's in fact how all many of the others began as well. The same call. It's the call of repentance. He calls the people to repent. So after learning who Zechariah is and when he's speaking, he immediately reminds them of how they got to where they are to begin with. It's been almost 70 years now since their fathers were carried off into exile. They're taken from Jerusalem, the city of God, taken away from their place of worship as the first temple is destroyed, and they're taken into a foreign land with foreign gods with the expectation that, according to the prophet Jeremiah, they would remain there for about 70 years, a sign that their discipline was full and complete. And it was then... That the earlier prophets said that God would bring them back. That if they repented, He would restore them back to the land that He gave them. That if if they repented, He'd restore them back into fellowship with Him. And and if they repented, He would restore them back to being His chosen people under His holy rule. And that's exactly what Zechariah calls for, isn't it? He says there in verses 3 and 4, thus declares the Lord of hosts. We talked about that title for God last week. It happens over and over and over in the book of Zechariah. He says, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear, or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. In fact, he goes on to say that this discipline had ran its course and achieved the purpose God intended. As verse 6 says, "...as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so He has dealt with us." So what do we have here in these first six verses? Because it really lays the groundwork for for where these visions are going to go. What we have here is the Lord explaining to His people one of the things that I've really labored to explain to my own children. That God's discipline is meant to draw us back into proper fellowship with Him. That's why parental discipline that only ends in angrier parents and hardened children is such an abomination to God. Because God's discipline and godly discipline, therefore, draws us back. It turns us back. It leads to what's called repentance. And that's Zechariah's call here. That they should return to God that they should repent of their sin of idolatry, of hoping and trusting and looking to other nations for help, of putting their hope in horses and chariots and the kings and dominions of the world and then going and worshiping that nation's false gods. God says, enough is enough. It's time for you to come back and to walk in right fellowship with me. And so it's, it's in this way that Zechariah's word from the Lord is the exact same word of the cross of Jesus Christ. It says the exact same thing. That's why we sung so clearly today that, that we are the people of God called by His name. Why? Because of the blood of Christ, Jesus the Son. That is the final revelation of God's foretold salvation. It is what must finally draw us to repentance, to see the holy God and to know that you've sinned against Him. And yet, for those who turn to Jesus and turn from their sin, that they are welcomed into the very family of this holy God, into the very kingdom of this perfect God. That's exactly what the kingdom of God is, isn't it? You might have heard me say this before, but as we step into Zechariah's visions of encouragement, what exactly is he encouraging them toward? To step into the kingdom through repentance. And what is that kingdom? The kingdom is to be God's people in God's place under God's ruler. That's exactly what the kingdom of God is. And the first step to getting there, even for us today, is repentance. Whether that's repenting for ongoing sin, or repenting for the first time for living a life contrary to God, if you're here this morning and you want to know God, You want to have a relationship with Him, even a deeper relationship with Him? You see that? You want that? The only response we have is to turn from our sin and to turn back to Him, to run toward Him in humble faith. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you want to know more about what repentance and faith and following Jesus looks like, I'll be at the back doors after service. I would love to talk with you more about that. But Zechariah wants them to move past mere repentance. He wants them to see where they might go, where they've been, and how it is that they're going to get there. In some ways, that gives us a rough outline of these visions. As I said earlier, there's eight of them, or really there's nine of them, as we'll come to see in just a minute. But they, they come in these mirrored pairs. And so you see there in your bulletin, We've laid it out with the, the sections for each of the visions because they come in these mirrored pairs. So, what do I mean by that? I mean that vision one and vision eight correlate with each other two, seven, three, six, and four and five. Create the climax, the pinnacle. Okay? So, that's helpful to see because I'm going to be jumping. So, if you have a Bible, I hope you've got it open to Zechariah. Keep it open. If you closed your Bible, you're going to be bored during this sermon. Open it back up. We're going to be looking at these visions. And as we get into them, I think you're going to understand. Remember the truths of what these visions are for. They're these vivid word pictures pointing to a spiritual reality that don't necessarily unfold in chronological time. but They have a, an immediate fulfillment, and maybe small, then a future fulfillment, and then, then a final fulfillment on the last day. Okay, let's start with the visions then, with the vision of the future kingdom. The first and last visions. Look back at verse 8 of chapter 1. Let me just read that first vision so you get a, a handle for how these things actually unfold. Zechariah says, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked to me with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth. And behold, all, that, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered, gracious, and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Here we go. Here we go. that's your first taste, you're like, what is going on here? There's some horses, there's some dude around some trees. What's going on? Why, why does Zechariah have these dreams? These sound like the kind of dreams I have. What's, what's happening here? Well, Zechariah in this dream, he, he sees a man, right? And this man is walking among some horses, walking in some trees. And each of these items have some deeper significance that we won't necessarily get into today. But the man comes and says that these, these horses had gone throughout the whole earth. And in going throughout the whole earth, they found peace. They found rest. They have found shalom, what was there back in the Garden of Eden, that wholeness, that completeness in God. It's then that the angel tells Zechariah what this is all about. He says that, that God still loves Israel and would restore Israel as a kingdom. So, verse 17 summarizes it well. Well, it says, Crowd again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. What we have here is really a picture of the future kingdom of God. It covers the whole earth in peace and rest. Don't miss that. This isn't just this centralized geographical location, Jerusalem, but the horses, which represent going to the four corners of the earth, go and what do they find? They find peace. They find rest in all of the earth. It seems to be centered, though, here, doesn't it? Here at at this mountain called Zion, which represents this holy mountain of God, the place where God and man would meet together once again. Now this vision that opens the visions of the future kingdom is met with the final vision over in chapter 6, if you want to flip over there. I won't read it, but it's there in verses 1-8 through that we find the four horses of different colors show up again. Only this time... They're pulling four chariots. And in some of these, four represent the four corners of the world in some way. And that's exactly what they're doing. These chariots pulled by these horses are running again through the, the whole earth. We find exactly the peace of that first vision, where it came from. How is it that the whole world came to a place of peace? You see that it comes from the very judgment of God upon His enemies... We find this specifically there in Zechariah 6-7. Look there, it says, When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Makes sense, right? Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. We find that peace and paradise, the rest for the kingdom will only come after the Holy Spirit Himself has rested from executing right judgment, the right judgment of God upon all those who stand against Him. And this is going to be built out in the next two visions. That's the point of the first and last. And what's the point for the people of God then? How is this to be an encouragement to them? It was meant to show them that God would not stop fighting for them and for His kingdom until all the earth was once more subdued to His rulership. To once more the one who stands among the myrtle trees would rule over all the earth. It was meant then to gird them up in knowing that their God was fighting for them. And yes, they had been in exile because of their sin under God's discipline, but even that was part of God's kingdom-building work. And even God's correction was re- part of His restoring rest and hope and shalom to the earth. It's no wonder then that we find a, a similar vision of the horsemen there in Revelation 6, 1-8. through 8. And it, it should be noted somewhere here, I'll, I'll just insert it here, that Zechariah is one of the most quoted prophets of the New Testament especially in the book of Revelation. If you've read the book of Revelation recently, these visions are just going to keep blipping up in your mind. Oh yeah, I seem to remember that somewhere else. That much of what John was seeing in his own vision was very similar to what the minor prophets saw in their vision. Why is that? It's because the truth continues to be held out for God's people today. Friends, don't miss this. That God's kingdom is still being built. That God is still fulfilling the promise of these visions. That there is not yet peace on all the earth, but it is still coming. That there is a day, and God will not stop fighting until that day of renewed and restored shalom is reached in all of the earth. And so this takes us to the next visions, the second and seventh. They serve as, as visions of the past and visions of the future. They help us understand rebellion itself. So let's look at those then as visions of past rebellion. Flip back over to chapter 1. In verses 18 through 21 we are given another picture of four. But this time the number four doesn't represent the four corners of the earth or four horses, but the four big enemies of God in Zechariah's own time. We find that there are these four horns. These horns, one of each representing Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia those four kingdoms of the world that were so opposed to God, or so opposed to God's people, but we find that these four craftsmen step forward, they take hold of the horns, and they throw them down and crush them. This image of what God would do to His enemies then is a reminder of two things that we've seen in the Minor Prophets. First, they show how God had raised up these nations, and that He had used them for His own purposes. They had been as horns in His hand to declare through discipline that God was not happy with the ways that His people were not following Him, that their disobedience had brought about discipline and therefore God was going to raise up and use these nations as instruments to correct His people. But at the same time, He would not let them go unfettered. He would not let them continue forever. And so the bigger truth even here in this vision is that God finally take care of their hatred and their violence by crushing them and making them utterly nothing. We see something similar then in the seventh vision that God would not only deal with the sin of the nations but that he's also going to deal with the sin of, of this kingdom breaking people. So he's, he's going to put them back together by ridding them of their sin. Look over at Zechariah 5 verses 5 through 11. Love to hear the sound of turning pages. What a gift. Let me read 5 through 11 of Zechariah 5. It's one of the more vivid and weird dreams. Sounds like a dream from a pregnant lady. I'm just going to say that. It's kind of crazy. All right. So it says Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. So there's something going out. Okay, we follow so far. Okay. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted. There's this heavy lead cover over the top of the basket. The lid is made out of lead, okay? It's very heavy, it's important. And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And I said, I'm sorry, and he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. (laughs) What is this all about? What's going on with this weird basket? And there's this woman whose name is Wickedness inside this basket. And has this heavy lid on it. And here come these two women that look like angels, have some crazy wings. And they pick the basket up and they take it to Shinar, which is Babylon. What are they doing here? Remember, these kingdom visions are meant to encourage the people of God. And some of us are like, this is not very encouraging to me. I don't know what's going on right now. Well, in short, it's a picture their own sin. Much like in the book of Proverbs, we see wisdom cast as a woman and folly cast as a woman. So we see here that their sin is cast, their wickedness is cast as this woman who's been put into a a basket and she's carried away to the land of sin, to the land of Babylon. In some ways it's a completion of what God had started with the nations. That not only would His enemies be cast down, but his own people would have their sin removed. Friends, it would not be wrong to read this and, and even think of the, the scapegoat of Leviticus 16 where the priest puts his hands upon the goat, confesses all the sin of the people and then sends it out into the wilderness. This is a very similar kind of thing where God's people's sin are cast into this basket. It's full of wickedness and the wickedness is taken away. This vision promises the eradication from the land of all that is opposed to God and His good purposes. Wickedness will be sent back to where it belongs. And this is a future promise at the same time, given because of past sins, and it's still held out for us. You see, as I mentioned, that Shinar in the Bible is Babylon. And Babylon, throughout all of Scripture, comes to represent the pride of humanity and the opposition of God, much like the Tower of Babel itself in Genesis 11. Or or later in in Revelation 17, Babylon there is pictured herself, itself as a prostitute that seduces people with her beauty, but who in the end turns out to be this hideous beast that only destroys. So a great threat for Christians today is the same as it was in Zechariah's day. The seductiveness, the wickedness, and the idols of the Babylons of our own age. you see that? see that in, in the crushing of the nations who are opposed to God, but also in the ridding of our sin. To Where does it go? To one of those very nations. We see that there's a seductiveness to be like the nations. But this vision reminds us that as God's people, we must see through this deception. We must resist sin, which brings us to the next set of visions, really. The visions of the new Jerusalem. These are the third and the sixth visions. So the third is found there in Zechariah 2 1 through 13. Let me summarize it for us. It's in this vision that we're given this glorious view of a, of a new Jerusalem that's overflowing with God's blessing, as verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 tell us. This leads then to several commands that God gives Zechariah to give to the people in verses 6 through 13. And these commands or, or imperatives, they're a big deal for the people of God. Listen to them. They include a call for the exiles in Babylon to return to Jerusalem in 6 through 9, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to sing and rejoice in the prospect of God dwelling again among his people in verses 10 through 12, and for hostile nations to shut their mouth before the Lord in verse 13. As we look at it, we come to see that, that this is nothing less than a restoring of the call of God back to his people when they came out of bondage in Egypt during the Exodus period. Here, like there, God's people are meant to be the very dwelling place of God. They they are meant to have His very glory dwelling among them, where His presence draws them into worshipful song and, and worshipful holiness so that they may stand as a light to the nations, so that the nations would see the glory of God cover their mouth and be drawn in. In short, this third vision is a vision for what we may call the missions-mindedness of the people of God. This is the missional vision. We look back then at Zechariah 5, 1 through 4, as we see the sixth vision that mirrors this. So if God's people are called in worshipful holiness, how's that going to happen? That's what this vision is all about. Pick up verse 1, Zechariah 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. All right, so not as crazy as the one before, but still, pretty weird. It's just paper flying in the air. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief, the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So we have a vision now of this scroll, and he tells us the length, of us, length and width of it to show us that it is a big scroll, And this scroll is going to go to everybody who sins, particularly in two ways, who steals, who lies. It's going to consume them. It's going to consume their house. It's a fire-starting scroll. Now, I don't know what the big deal is with all the flying. The woman in the basket now scroll. I don't know what's going on there. We are reminded, though, that if God is going to dwell with His people in this new Jerusalem, as what was pictured for us in that third vision, then there must be holiness. You remember this from our study of Leviticus back at the beginning of this year. For God to dwell among His people, they must be what? Holy as He is holy. And so this scroll, that in some way represents the very law of God, would come and clean out all that is unclean among them. That this scroll that represents the law of God would come and purify them as it exposes their sin exactly what we have pictured here the scroll represents the the word of god the law of moses which reveals the unholiness of the people this is what the bible tells us is one of the main uses of the law that it shows us our sinfulness but that law was not god's final word was it god didn't stop with giving the law of moses or say it another way that might get some of us excited for the series in John in a few weeks. We need a word of God that will continue to cleanse the people of God. We need a word of God that's willing to take on flesh to cleanse us so that we're not utterly consumed and condemned. Which brings us to the top. Just to recap what we've seen. We just got to the pinnacle here. We're going to look at four and five in a minute, but let's remember where we've been because these are a lot of visions, right? We've had visions of God's promised kingdom achieved through His judgment of sin and His work of building it. Every step of the way thus far we've seen that God is the main actor, that He is the one working, He is the one cleansing, He is the judge, He is the builder. But now as we come to these pinnacle visions, the visions in the middle, at the top, we're given something new. We're given the vision of two leaders of God's people. For the prophets... Of Zechariah's day, I'm sorry, for the people of Zechariah's day, these were people that they were very familiar with. And because if you were here last week looking at Haggai, you'll be familiar with them too. So let's think about these visions of faithful leadership. Begin there in chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read it for us 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand of his, I'm sorry and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, "The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire?" Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, "Remove the filthy filthy garments from him." And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. What do we have here? Well, a lot. I mean, this this could be a sermon in and of itself, couldn't it? Because there's so much wrapped up here in this high priest named Joshua, or more literally translated, Yeshua. See, he, as we learned last week, was to serve as as the intermediary between God and the people. This is what the high priest did, right? The high priest brought the people to God and confessing their sin and making sacrifice and made them worthy and ready to be before this Holy One who was coming to dwell among them. And so, in short, we find that Joshua, the high priest that we met last week, here is dressed in this vision in filthy clothes. Zechariah has a vision of him before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, of all people, the the accuser, that's what Satan literally means in the Hebrew, the accuser, who's one of the heavenly beings who had rebelled against God. He's there accusing as he always does. But the Lord shows up and straight up rebukes him. Not today, Satan. What does he do? He gives him rich clean clothes. Joshua is made to look the beautiful priest again. And then God Himself explains this vision to Zechariah because of its importance. He says that Joshua will be blessed as a high priest who serves the Lord. He says that this one who will stand before God on behalf of the people will rule the house well if he walks in obedience to God. In some sense, this this, this vision is a promise from God to put the nation aright again, to fix and to put back what had been broken by their sin and the poor leadership of kings and priests and prophets. But on the other hand, this is a future promise as well, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but this Joshua ain't walking around anymore. He dies. He doesn't stand forever. There's one who is talked about here who will stand forever. Did you notice that? We see he's not named here other than being called the branch. The branch. In the very next verse, this branch is also called a stone, a stone with seven eyes, seven, the number meaning completion, fullness. So we have this one, whoever he is, who's a branch and a stone all at once. And his work is going to culminate in God removing the iniquity of his people in a single day. This vision then of Joshua the high priest rolls right into the next vision about Zerubbabel, the governor of God's people. We thought a little bit about Zerubbabel last week, but look at Zechariah 4 and see what he says about him there. Come back to this branch. He's going to come back up later. Just hang on to that. Some of you are getting worked up. We'll get there. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Here's the stone again. And now people, when they see it, are, are exclaiming grace, grace to it. And we're told, here that this Zerubbabel, who's the governor of God's people in this day, under King Darius, is going to bring all of this about. The angel of the Lord shows Zechariah this golden lampstand being fed by oil from these two olive trees. The two olive trees then represent Joshua on the one hand and Zerubbabel on the other hand the high priest and the governor, are these two men whose oil continually feeds the lampstands. Now what are the lampstands? Well, much like in the book of Revelation there, in the very beginning of Revelation, what do we find Jesus walking among? Golden lampstands. What do they represent? They represent the very people of God. The people where the lamp has been set. The light shall not go out. Should we hide it under a bushel? No. But we are to be golden lampstands. And it is there... That Christ walks among His people. It's a fulfillment of what we find here in Zechariah. These golden lampstands that are fed by the oil of these two leaders of God. They feed the people as priest and as ruler. They were meant to ensure that the people had all they needed to keep on burning. They were a gift of God Himself to His people. But this is not the final vision. That's eight. What do you mean that's the final vision? There's, because we've reached the pinnacle, there's a bonus vision. We find it at the very end in Zechariah 6, 9 through 15. This bonus vision correlates with these two, Joshua and Zerubbabel. So look there with me. Picking up, I'll pick up in verse 11 of this vision. "'Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest.' And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. We find Joshua, Yeshua the high priest, brought back up, but now the branch, this man called the branch, is mentioned again. And now Joshua the high priest is, is not given the turban and the vestments of the high priest, but he's given a kingly crown. You see, this branch, though, seems to be rising more and more to an important role among God's people. You notice that it's not said that the people of God will build the temple. Which is so interesting because that's the whole reason Zechariah is prophesying. That's the whole reason Haggai prophesied as we looked at last week. It was to encourage the people to build the temple. Get to work. But there's this branch here who's going to actually build the temple? The branch will hold royal honor and he's going to sit upon his throne? But, But if he's sitting upon his throne, why does it say that there's going to be a high priest who sits upon his throne? How does this all work out? Who is this? And what does he have to do with the rebuilding of the temple then? Well, the reason these visions of Joshua and Zerubbabel are last and are given this bonus vision here is because they stand for us as the final and greatest encouragement for God's people in Zechariah's day. And friends, let me tell you something. They stand as the greatest encouragement for us in our own day. Because it's here that we find the vision of one. Of one who is coming. And who has now come. Come who would not only fulfill the role of high priest, not only the role of king, but would be the very Son of God that Israel themselves had failed to be over and over and over again. This branch is none other than Jesus Christ, the true builder of God's kingdom. He is the one who has been riding quietly under the surface this entire time and now burst forth like a shoot from broken ground in all of His glory. And as we'll see next week, the work of the kingdom from the first rolls over into the work of the king in the second half. And this brings us to the challenge of the book. As the people heard of the glory of God's kingdom work, as they were reminded of who they were, as they received promises of God's reformation and rebuilding, as they were told of new heights to be reached under new leadership, God left them with one question in chapters 7 and and 8. We don't have time to read them all this morning. I want to encourage you to go and read them this week in light of what we've learned here this morning. But here's the question that he leaves with them. Will you be the people of God? And friends, I think the same question stands for us. Even today, little old us here now. In light of who God is, in light of the one who's coming and who has come, will we be the people of God? Seven and eight lay this out. In these final two chapters, they circle around two eternal truths for God's people. Number one, that God will save us. And number two, that we are saved by God to serve God. So number one, God's going to save. and number two, we're called to serve. We see this in the calls at the end of chapter seven. When verse 9 calls the people of Zechariah's day to render true judgments, to show kindness and mercy to one another. Or in chapter 8, verse 9, you can look over there when the Lord of hosts tells his people, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing the words from the mouth of the prophets. I feel like that as, as we have elders' meetings, that's, that's the one thing that we always want to get up here and be strong. Let your hands be strong. You who hear the very word of God. Or near the end of chapter 8 in verse 16, where Paul would later quote in Ephesians 4, 5, this verse. He says, There are things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. See here, God makes one central thing clear. That when His people are walking in His ways, it is His main means of bringing the kingdom of God here and now. Let me say that again because you need to get it. That when God's people are walking in God's ways, it is the main means in which He builds His kingdom. That Jesus desires to build His kingdom here and now among us, among our neighbors, among our jobs, in our homes. How does it happen? Following him in faith, walking in obedience, looking to God. How could they? How could they know? How could they know that God was with them, that he would save them? It's because he described his love for them. And this is where our hope still stands. Look back at the beginning of chapter 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain." Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Now we'll put aside the very practical application of how we should have a generationally diverse congregation with a bunch of old people and a bunch of kids. That's pretty clear. Put that aside for now. Friends, the question here is how do we find our own encouragement from this passage? See, this is the problem with Zechariah's prophecy. And I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I'll mention it now. This is the problem. is that by the time of the New Testament, all that Zechariah says here feels like a lie. It really does. I mean, had God actually spoken through this guy or did he just make up these weird dreams he was having? I mean, some of the things he said kind of came about, but, but you open the pages of the New Testament, and here are God's people. Jerusalem, they're under Roman rule. There's no, no God's ruler. They're under Roman occupation, surrounded by centurions and governors who care nothing for this so called God or the people who worshiped Him. The second temple wasn't anything to write home about. The glory of God did not come back and dwell among them as it had with the first temple. And plus they have these priests and these scribes and these Pharisees who were just as unfaithful as they had always been. I mean, had God brought them back to Jerusalem to save them or not? Was God's people going to be gathered in God's place under God's ruler or not? As you open the pages of the New Testament, you have to ask yourself, where where is this kingdom of God? Yeshua the high priest was long gone. Zerubbabel had been dead for a a while. When are these prophecies going to be fulfilled? Is, Is there another horizon? Are there more mountains beyond what they know? A greater fulfillment? Was something still held out for the people of God? For the kingdom of God? Well, friends, to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. And to find a king you have to keep reading Zechariah. And to do that, you have to wait until next week. But until then, may we find encouragement in our God as He calls us to serve Him in a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. Let's go to Him in prayer. God, You are a kingdom-building God. You call us unto Yourself as weak and as needy as we are. Oh God, that you would be at work among us, frail and weak us. That you would use us as instruments in your hands. God, we do long for the King. We know Him in part now, but we long to see Him face to face. So God, as we prepare now to come to this table that whispers of the wedding feast of that King, the Lamb. Pray, and we ask that you would draw us to yourself, that you would work some of us for the very first time in saving our very souls this morning. For others, that you would draw us to repentance, that you would renew a right spirit within us. We are washed by the blood of the Lamb. It is in Jesus' name we pray.